This morning we're uh, we're looking at. I think I've got it on now, John. Sorry about that. Um, this morning we're looking at the first chapter of Ephesians, and for those of you who uh, are visiting this morning or maybe not aware, we have started a series on the unity that we have in Christ. And so last week or two weeks ago, Logan began leading us through an overview of the book of Ephesians. And then last week we looked at what Paul really was talking about, what God has done for you in Christ. When you came and accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, there were things, whether you felt it or not, there are things that changed in your life because of what God has done, not what you did. And so in light of that, Paul teaches us, he says, first of all, that God made you holy and blameless. He separated you as his people. That's what holiness is. It's, it's a separation for a, a purpose that God has ordained. And so no one can blame you for your sins anymore because through the cross he's forgiven you. More importantly, he's adopted you as a child. You're now no longer orphans or separated as aliens from God. You're part of his family. And thirdly, you've been redeemed from the sin and the power of death so that you know that if you face death today, right now, you don't have to worry because the death Christ died for you not only forgave you of your sins, but as now he has prepared a place for you in heaven. More importantly, he has not only forgiven you of your sins, he's revealed the mystery that have been hidden throughout the ages, that what God began so long ago in calling Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he has completed in bringing Christ into the world to redeem those who were lost from God. And then he's drawn you you didn't come to Christ because you're so smart or so handsome. You came to Christ because the Father drew you to the hope that is offered in Jesus Christ. And then finally, in coming to Christ and inviting the Lord to forgive you, asking him to wash you and cleanse you and to separate you as a person belonging to him, God has sealed you with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? None of this was accomplished by you. God did it all. Every last bit. And so as you hear this passage, and, and Logan and I were commenting after reading through this passage, you could probably preach a series from chapter 1, verse 3 through verse 14. You could probably preach a series of sermons that would last through the year. Uh, or at least would take 24 hours. And since you won't give us either one of that time, we're going to move on to verse 15. And I want to ask if you'll stand with me and let us enjoy hearing the Word of God together. Paul continues in those verses, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power 
is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God... God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of God. You may be seated. When I think about uh, our topic as far as united in Christ, there is no more Uh, reason to study this book than to understand how we are to live in such a divided country. I hear people say that we have never lived in times, never experienced times as we've had where we have been so divided as a country. I beg to differ. We had a civil war. We actually went to war shooting and killing one another. And I dare say that there is that kind of volatility that is still around today that you and I know with what all that's happening in our culture, regardless of what side you may be on, there is a tremendous amount of worry, concern about our future. And God has called you as the church into this ministry. God has called you as the church to address the needs of our country, not with your own political wisdom or your sociological insight, But he has called you to address the needs of our country with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it was no different in Paul's day. There was divisions there that existed. Whether you were Gentile or Jew, man or woman, free or slave, there were always and always have been divisions in the world. And let me tell you, my friends, the only hope this world has is Christ and the message of the gospel through the church. And so you and I, as we begin to dig into this passage and we begin to dig deeply, please notice that you'll see that Paul says that he prays that they may know God better, verse 17, and then goes on to say, and I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Do you know the hope? I dare say that if I hadn't read the book of Ephesians, I might have forgotten it. Or if I knew it at all, I needed Ephesians to remind me. Well, Paul, in this prayer, and why this prayer is worthy of you praying this morning is for two reasons. First, please notice that it's first a prayer of thanksgiving, and secondly, it is a prayer of intercession. Now, what is intercession? Intercession is asking God through the petitions of prayer to supply for us what we cannot give ourselves. Let me let that sink into you. Intercession is asking God to supply for us what we cannot give ourselves. Now, we're Americans. God bless us. We are a can-do people. We need something fixed that's broken. We take care of it. We have a problem. We solve it. The only problem is the problem that is in the roots of our country and in your heart is the problem of sin, and no one can overcome it except Christ. That's why Paul's praying. 
Let's take it apart and look at it more carefully. First, please look at the thanksgiving of prayer. He says, I am so thankful to you Ephesians. Why? For the faith they have in Christ. You know, I have a ring on my finger. I love this ring. But there was a time when in my life where I had to replace it. In other words, I had to have a second one. We had to go buy another wedding ring. That was almost the death of my life. What had happened was we were living in the manse across the street and I had taken the ring off and put it on a table and I had not thought about it for again. So when I went back to look for it, I couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, for those of you who, who don't have this problem, uh, just imagine if you lost your glasses and you couldn't see anything. Well, that's kind of how it felt as I looked for the ring around the, around the house. And I didn't want to tell my wife I had lost our wedding ring. Can you imagine? That's the curse of death. Fortunately, she was a godly woman, quick to forgive, and said, I'm sure it will turn up. It never turned up. Weeks went by, months went by, until finally the decision was made that we had to go buy another ring. It wasn't the same. I had gone hunting with some people in South Carolina when I got this emergency phone call, and it was my wife. She says, you're not going to believe what I found. And I said, what is it? She said, I found your wedding ring. And I said, now this is months later. I said, where is it? She said, you know the dolly that we put on the table that is under the lamp to keep the lamp from scratching the table? I said, yeah. She said, it was right under the dolly. And I said, well, how do you think it got there? She said, I think the cat batted it under there. <laughs> and I was, I mean, I can't tell you how excited I was. I, I mean, I was so grateful that I had not lost it down the commode or washed it down the drain or done something stupid because I've been done to do stupid things. So when I got home, we got the ring, and I was like, wow. And now I have two wedding rings just to make sure I'm married now. <laughs> but you know, the Bible says something about your faith that is more precious than this wedding ring. And in fact, it's more precious than the gold this wedding ring is made. And if you've, you've priced the price of gold today, the Bible says that God has given you faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by faith you have been saved through grace, and this is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone would boast. The gold of your life is not on your fingers. It is your trust in Christ. It is more precious than any material possession of your life. So you can well imagine the Apostle Paul, after preaching the gospel to people who would say, nah, don't want to hear it, would be so incredibly thankful that in the city of Ephesus there were people who said, I need Christ, I want Christ, I desire to know God through Christ. And so as he's writing them, he is probably filled with tears. I am so thankful for your faith. Why is he thankful? The faith is not just something they believe. It's something in the air that's effervescent. They see their faith changing their life because they not only love God, they love each other 
Now, you say, well, what's the big deal about that? I love a lot of people. No, no, you don't understand. These were both Jews and Gentiles, people who never talked, never spoke, never ate with one another. They did not socialize with each other. And now through this gospel, God has created a new humanity that is not made of Jew or Gentile, but is made of Christ in them. And this Christ in them has united what could not be united before into a new people. And that faith made it happen. No, 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 no. No, Faith is not faith in faith. It is Christ who they believed in that made that happen. Now, just take a moment to think of that. What has Christ done for you? So that the barriers that once separated you from other people are now dissolving away. How do you show your love for what Paul says are saints? Did you all know you're a saint? Did you know that? Many of you think that if you grew up in the Roman Catholic faith, you've got to wait till you die to become a saint. And you have to be declared a saint by a pope. Not according to Paul. He writes in Ephesians, he says, The moment you came to Christ and confessed your sins and believed upon his work of the cross on your behalf and God gave you the mark and seal of the Holy Spirit, you became a saint, a holy one, one separated for the purpose of God. Now, do you believe that? You see, that's where the real challenge is, isn't it? And that may be why he's praying for them because he probably realizes that they may not believe that as well. And so because of what God has done in giving them faith in Christ, he is praying in a never-ending thanksgiving for what God has done for them. It's not about whether they live up to the gospel or not. It's about the fact that God has done this in them. That God has accomplished it. That God has made it possible. And so in that tremendous work of God's grace, these people are alive in Christ because they're so wonderful. No, because they're so good. No, because they were born in the right family. No, they're born into Christ because God, from the foundations of the world, had determined to call them, call them out of the world to be a special people belonging to him. Isn't that powerful? That's what God did for you. He has called you out of this world to be significantly different. I was talking with teenagers this morning, and I said one of the real problems we have as a people is that we want to please other people, and we want to please other people so strongly in our lives that we will almost do anything to be loved. Well, you know, guess what? Now that you're in Christ, you don't have anyone else to worry about except Jesus. You only have him to please. So you have... You have actually allowed everyone else to abdicate from the throne of your pleasing them to now only having one Lord, one God, and it is Him alone you are to please. Paul's going to talk about this in the rest of the book of Ephesians. He's going to talk about how indeed we please God. What kind of forms does it take in our families, in our workplaces? How we live out the gospel In the tangible day-by-day decisions of life, Paul's going to talk about how we apply the gospel in that way.
more importantly, as we get to the latter part of this, he has a prayer of intercession. Now remember what intercession is. Intercession is asking for God what we cannot give ourselves. And so as he is specifically asking God, he gives specific petitions. Petitions are requests. There are those things that we purposefully pray for. And the first is, he says, I pray that you will have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. The interesting part of that is the Greek there, when you look at that, those two words, wisdom and revelation, I, I really stumbled over that because I honestly don't think I'm that smart. Do you? I look at some of you and I just think, man, I wish I was that smart. And I think at first when I think of the word wisdom, I think, well, what he's talking about there is he's talking about someone who's really smart. Someone who goes to Harvard or Yale or someone who is really educated, has a Ph.D. That's someone who has wisdom. Have you talked to many people who have Ph.D.s lately? Some of them aren't so smart. We had a professor who had more PhDs than I could imagine. I mean, he had an incredible scholarship. But when it came to finding his car, when he came home at the airport, he, would, he was clueless. He didn't even know where he parked his car. He had to call his wife to come pick him up. Then he found out that he actually had flown into the wrong airport. Well, if wisdom is not about smarts, then what is it? Well, here's a definition that may help you, it helped me. Wisdom is the capacity to understand and to act wisely. It is to be someone who, who lives prudently. What does that mean? Well, it means that you're someone who, who wants to... Oh, I'm not, not quite there, excuse me. It's someone who wants to live prudently. It's someone who wants to act with or short, show a care and a thought for how to live into the future. When you go to the book of Proverbs and you begin to study the wisdom literature like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Psalms, when you look at those passages of Scripture, that wisdom that is godly wisdom is the ability to think and act in such a way that we know that God is our Lord and Savior and we start out doing something with the end in mind. One illustration is Jesus says, you know, what man goes out and builds a barn only to find that he can't complete it? Well, what good is it for you and I to begin to decide we're going to move to a new place in, in the world without first making preparations to get there and be settled and to know where to shop and where to get a, find a doctor or where to, to have the basic needs that we need to live in that community? Who in the world it would be foolish just to show up one day without ever talking to a real estate agent and saying, I'm ready to get a home? No, wisdom according to the scriptures is the ability to start with the end in mind. To always think of the outcome, even at the beginning. And so when Paul prays, I pray that you have a spirit of wisdom. He's praying that they will have in their minds the end of what God wants to accomplish by calling them into faith in his son. Do you know what the end of your life is? Do you know what God's purpose is in calling you to faith in Christ? He has an end in mind. He has a result he is producing. He has a goal in which he has determined to accomplish. 
That's why we hold on to passages like, like, He who began a good work in me will bring it to completion. What are we doing? We're acknowledging that we're in a process, that we're not perfected as Christ is, and yet God's purpose in calling us is to bring, to that, bring us to that perfection. The second is revelation. He says, I pray for a spirit of revelation. Well, what is that? Well, it's not just something that's known. It's something that is never really understood until it's revealed, until it's disclosed, until it's fully made realized before you. And he goes on to say that you may know. And that word in the Greek is interesting because the two words that the Greek uses for knowledge can be sometimes interchanged with each other. Here I don't think it's the fact. Because in this first verse he says that you might know Christ. And what he says there is that you might know this God in the content of who he is and what he's done for you. And so as Paul prays this prayer, he is praying specifically that you and I will come to a wisdom and understand his revelation of who he is so that we know him better and better, that we know who the Father is. A couple of weeks ago, we were working through Matthew in the midweek Bible study at 10 o'clock, and one of the things we came across was the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer opens with, Our Father who art in heaven. So we see, we even prayed that this morning. But in teaching that prayer, Jesus is giving you knowledge about who God is to you. And he says he's your father. We began to meditate on that truth as a group and we began to dig deeply into its, its implications. You see, for me, that is a huge, huge change of life. My father abandoned me at eight. I didn't have a father. And to come to God and to know him as my father, you could well imagine the healing, the overwhelming restoration of my soul as I learn more about the God who supplies for my need, who is with me, who is for me, not against me. When I come to understand this father, and even Paul says, the glorious father, not like an earthly father. How powerful all this becomes, doesn't it? How overwhelming that, that now he's praying for that spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they know facts about God. And in that knowledge of the facts about God, they begin to know him better and better and better and better. It's kind of like dating, isn't it? I remember the first time I asked my wife out, she said that, she was really sorry, but she had to go on a trip with some people skiing. And I thought, boy, that's the greatest excuse I've ever heard. And then the ski trip was canceled, and she was trying to figure out how in the world she was going to tell me that the, the trip was canceled. She never did. And so I went through the rest of the week thinking, well, she's not interested until she finally said, well, 
I didn't go, and I'm sorry. I would have loved to have gone out with you, so I immediately latched onto it, and I said, okay, let's go to a movie. Let's go see Fiddler on the Roof. It's going to be playing at the local college, and boy, that began a relationship. Well, let me tell you, if all I knew about my wife was only what I had learned that first night of dating, our marriage would never be as rich as it is today. Never. The same is true with the Lord. That when you come to your faith in Christ, you begin a relationship with Him that Paul is praying will continue to increase in its effect. That you will know God, not as the God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, but you will know Him as your glorious Father. Your glorious Father. He not only wants them to have a spirit of, of, of wisdom and revelation, he wants them to pray, he wants them to understand some deeper truth about this. He wants their eyes of their heart to be enlightened. What does that mean? Well, it's also a knowledge, but it's not a knowledge as in facts about God. The word is different here. The word is that you might have an experiential knowledge. I was working for a crew building pools in Hilton Head, South Carolina in my early days when I wore a younger man's clothes. And there was a, there was a pool we were, we were building that we had to literally wheelbarrow, wheelbarrow cement around the house and put it on the pool because there was no way to get the cement truck to the backyard. But not only that. We had to build a scaffolding that was about a 12-inch wide board to go across the deep hole we had dug in order to pour the deck where the patio would be on the other side of the pool. So as you came with this heavy load of cement, you had to then cross the scaffolding with only 12 inches wide, get across that to dump the cement to make the patio that we were hoping to build that day. And one of the foremen that was with us looked at one of the guys who was working with me, and I thank God he didn't ask me this. He looked at this guy and he said, do you know how to drive a wheelbarrow? And the young guy that was with me said, yes, sir, I sure do. He said, good, grab one, and they filled it up with cement. And he said, all right, take it over and dump it. Well, that guy, he got it going. He got the wheelbarrow up. He, he was doing pretty good for the first 100 feet of the yard. But as he got around to the pool and he got to the scaffolding, guess what happened? Oh, yeah. Somehow his balance got off and he started doing this. You, you ever seen that? Yeah, it's kind of like some of y'all driving on the road these days. It's just he's kind of weaving back and forth until finally he just weaved right off the whole entire board and dumped the entire wheelbarrow of cement into the water. The foreman looked at him and said, I thought you know how to drive that wheelbarrow. And he said, well, I know about how to drive the wheelbarrow. Is that how you know Christ? You see, that's the point. My friends, one of the things that Paul is praying for the Ephesians is that they will not just rest in their knowledge about facts about God. 
but they will come to know God intimately in their lives. They will be able to discern and hear his voice. They, they would recognize the Holy Spirit's leading and they would walk in the Spirit of God. He's going to be talking about that in Ephesians, how that happens. You know, it's amazing when you think about this. It, it's a powerful phrase because it's a prayer that possibly maybe I should be praying every day. Maybe you should be too. God, don't let me just go through the motions of knowing you, that you have certain doctrine that I'm supposed to understand about who you are and what you're doing, about how Christ is both God and man at the same time. That's wonderful, important doctrinal knowledge, but that's not the purpose of the gospel. It is not to fill you with knowledge so that you get puffed up and begin to think, well, I'm a Christian now, and I'm so good and wonderful, and I'm better than other people. That's not the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is that you would draw closer to the Father who is holy so that he can continue to make you holy and blameless, so that you begin to conform your life according to his pleasure, not yours. Because in the end, following God's pleasure is the most satisfying, enriching way of living life. I cringe, I cry, I mourn when I see what's happening in our culture today because people are filling their lives with all kinds of sexual deviancies thinking it will satisfy them and nothing does. It just infests and breeds more incredible corruption and all of that corruption comes from the fact they don't know God. And the only hope they have is to come to know Jesus Christ. And the only people they have to tell them is you. That's why Paul's praying. Because the Ephesians live in a city that is incredibly immoral. They worship idols through incredible immoral practices. And the bondage of that city is so great that Paul is very much aware that many of them are susceptible to those temptations and he is praying that they will be given a spirit of wisdom so that the eyes of their heart will be enlightened so that they would come to know and experience God in such satisfying ways. Well, who is this Jesus? Where does this power come to change my heart? Well, interestingly enough, he says that that we are called to a hope to which he has called us. What's our hope? Our hope is Jesus, our relationship with him. He calls us to a riches of his glorious inheritance. When you think about an inheritance, it's not something you earn. It's something you receive from God. God has given you certain things to help you live your life today in Christ, primarily the Holy Spirit. But through the Holy Spirit, he's given you spiritual gifts. He's given you talents. He's given you ability to influence others for Christ. And then thirdly, he has also wants us to understand the incomparable great power that is available to you. What power? The power to overcome our sins is not in you, meaning you, it's not manufactured by you. That power to resist and overcome sin is in Christ who is in you. And that's why he goes on to say this, this 
powerful passage. What power is this? How do we know this power? Well, it's already been displayed. It's been displayed in this. He says in verse 19, And his incomparable great power for us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. That power now unleashed in your life because you have placed your faith in God, that power is available to you. Not because you're smart, wise, or have some ability. It's because God is at work in you. And so in that matter, because Christ has been resurrected and he now reigns supreme in the heavens at the right hand of God, we know that this authority this power does not come from us, it comes from Him. And as we abide in Him and walk in Him, this power becomes evident in our daily walk as we are able to overcome, resist, and even through the failures of temptation, we come to see Christ more clearly. You ever gone to God and say, Lord, I'm back? Why, do, why does God allow that? I mean, does it for this very reason that you learn how... To trust him more and more. And to begin to understand how to deal with temptations. Through him. Remember the ring illustration I started out with? The faith that God has given? Man, I can't wait to get in this book, y'all. I, I just can't wait. There's so much there that I need to be fed from God's word. I just, I just hunger to know more about this power that Christ gives. I want to know this because there are moments I have where I just feel so powerless. Don't you? Here's the most amazing thing about faith. That, that ring for me was just such a symbol for me of the preciousness of, of faith that we have. One of the things that... that some people have taught in the past in the church is that we are saved by faith in Christ, but then we have to do certain works in order to be saved. And that's not what Paul has taught in the gospel. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9? For it is by grace, something we never deserved or earned, that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself, it's a gift of God lest anyone should boast. Well, what is this faith? Well, let me tell you something. Your faith is always dynamically changing. If you're not tending it, it will die. You can't create it. God gives it to you, but you can maintain it. We're planting a garden right now. Can you imagine that? Uh, Cindy is the only one that has the green thumb in our family. I just go out there to make things die. But the one thing that I've learned in learning about a garden is that if you just go out and plant the seed and then expect to have a harvest, you're going to really be disappointed because there are weeds that grow that have to be pulled out. There are things that have to be mended in the garden, trimmed. They have to be cultivated. Well, the same is true for your faith. And therefore, the question then becomes, well, what is true saving faith and how do I cultivate it? Well, in our, in our understanding of the scriptures, we see faith, saving faith, having three important essential elements. First, there is knowledge. The Latin word notatia 
It means that we have come to certain facts about who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ. This morning, you could be a person who knows all this. You know that Jesus died on the cross for you. You know that he gives the Holy Spirit to those who call upon him. You know from the Bible certain facts about God, but that does not mean you were saved. That is not saving faith. When I talk to people who are on the street and they haven't been at church and they don't seem to be worshiping in any particular place, I will ask them specifically, um, do you know God? And they say, oh, I know about God, yeah. What do you know about God? Oh, I know he, he died for me on the cross. I said, well, has that changed in your life in any way? And they say, oh, I just think it's so wonderful that Jesus died for me. See, all of that's based upon a knowledge of a fact. But there's a second part of saving faith is that someone believes it to be true. Someone believes it to be true. Now, there are people who do believe that Jesus actually lived and died on the cross. They know that he supposedly died for our sins. But that does not mean they are saved, that they have come into a relationship with Christ or with God through Christ. Then what does? In the Presbyterian and Reformed faith, as we study the Bible, we see this third criteria of saving faith, and that is fiducia. It is complete trust in Christ for every part of our salvation for the forgiveness of our sins, for the redemption of our body, for the overcoming of sin in our lives, for the final glorification where God will remove sin totally and completely from us when he comes again. And so, my friends, that is the prayer that Paul is praying for these Ephesians. He is praying that they won't just know a bunch of facts about Jesus, or that they'll even believe those facts to be true about Jesus. He is actually praying that they will grow in their complete dependency and trust in Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Father, this morning there may be someone in the sound of my voice who has not come to that place and they see now that the only way they can go forward is to call upon the name of Jesus and to begin a relationship with him where by faith they begin to trust in him for everything they need. They may be dealing with some addiction in their life that they have tried over and over to overcome and they've done it so many times they think there's no hope for them. And you have opened their minds and their hearts. You have enlightened the eyes of their heart to see that the person they need, it's not a program, the person they need is Jesus every day. And so if you're that kind of person, let me tell you, God is eager to hear you reach out to him. To acknowledge your sinful ways and just say, God, I don't want to live this way anymore. Please come in my life and change my heart. And he will. He'll begin to open the Bible to you in ways you've never understood it before. You'll become hungry for his word. You'll stop putting your trust in others to tell you, how to live a good life, you'll, you'll look to Jesus. 
And there'll be moments where you will have questions and doubts and fears. And in the midst of those things, Christ will have the answers and the power that you need in order to live. If you pray that prayer, I'd like to know it. It's very simple. Lord Jesus, come into my life. I'm, I'm, willing, I'm willing to follow you to the ends of the earth. If you will just come and forgive me and cleanse me and make me new. And as you give me this seed of faith, I will not discard it. I will not hide it. I will not lose it. I will begin to feed it like I would feed a plant in a garden and hold it more precious than gold. We ask, Father, in the name of the God who loves us, the glorious Father, the gracious Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.